Clean up on aisle four. My name is Will and this is Exploding Helicopter, still the only podcast in the world dedicated to celebrating helicopter explosions in film. Now, Hollywood has a long history of turning American footballers into actors. Jim Brown, often considered the NFL's greatest player, starred in films such as The Dirty Dozen and The Running Man after retiring from the game. Blacksportation star Fred the Hammer Williamson and the Oakland Raiders' Carl Weathers also made the switch from being footballers to thespians. More notoriously, former running back O.J. Simpson enjoyed a long and largely undistinguished screen career, or at least until real life intervened. After his ex-wife and her friend were murdered, Simpson suddenly found himself the star of a television legal drama. Fortunately, the Deuce had saved his most convincing performance in front of a camera for an L.A. courtroom. Most thought his role as an innocent man impossible to pull off. Luckily for him, the jury begged to differ. All of which, by way of roundabout introduction, brings us to Brian Bosworth. When injury prematurely ended the career of the flamboyant Seattle Seahawks tight end, it was no surprise that Tinseltown tapped him up for an acting career. So on this show, we're looking at his movie debut, 1991's Stone Cold. To help me look at the film, I'm joined on the line of scrimmage by Nick Rehack from French Toast Sunday. How you doing, Nick? I'm doing great. Well, thank you for inviting me back. Now, I have to ask, given the nature of this uh, nature of this show, now, why did the football go to the bank? Uh, I don't know, Will. Why did the football go to the bank? To get his quarterback. Uh, <laughs> I, as soon as you said to get his quarterback, I could hear the grin from ear to ear on your face. And another part of me is like, I like that joke. I'm going to tell it tomorrow when I'm at work. <laughs> Now, fortunately, uh, now, fortunately, you are a, a gridiron fan. So obviously I'm British. You know, I know very little about the game. So I'm, you know, I'm relying on you to sort of help us navigate uh, our way through this film. But uh, I wanted to ask, what is your uh, American football team? Uh, the American football team that I cheer for, I have two. I, I root for the Baltimore Ravens. I was born and raised in Baltimore, and I was told you root for the home team, so Ravens are my team. I spent a little bit of time in New Orleans, so I do have a bit of a sweet spot for the Saints, but if they go up against the Ravens, obviously going to pick the Ravens. Now, when I approached you about this film, I was a little bit nervous because I did wonder how much interest you'd have in talking about this largely forgotten action pick. But uh, when you got back to me, I was sort of delighted by your uh, genuine enthusiasm for doing it. So uh, I wondered what tilled your fancy about the film. I think just the fact that it starred Brian Bosworth and it was just this action film that it just looked it looked like it was going to be terrible. And I, I don't know, it just it piqued my interest. So I had to find out, is it terrible? Is it not? And I guess we'll talk about that in a couple minutes. Well, probably quite a few listeners are not going to be aware of who Brian Bosworth is. So, Nick, do you mind sort of giving people a quick sort of pen portrait uh, of the Boz? Sure, sure. Uh, Brian Bosworth was a college football player in Oklahoma. He was a linebacker and he was very uh, he had a larger than life ego. He took on this kind of character called the Boz and he always had all kind of T-shirts that he would make up. Um, he always did very extravagant hairstyles. He would get it cut a certain way. He would get it colored a certain way to the point where people would make these molds kind of like how you never see people put on like the horse's head or an animal's head and they kind of walk around. They're all goofy. They used to do that, but with his hairstyles and they would sell them 
<laughs> and you could look into the crowds and you'd see people like with, you know, that mullet, whatever he's got going on and people kind of rocking the same thing. Super controversial, always getting in trouble, but that's what sold tickets. People wanted to see what he was going to do next. He was drafted into the Seahawks and kind of like you mentioned earlier, just plagued by injuries and he just really fizzled out after like three seasons. And then he picked up into an acting career. I'm pretty sure he was on Sons of Anarchy at some point. Uh, recently, though, there's a really cool sports documentary from ESPN 30 for 30 called Brian and the Boz, and it takes a look at his entire college football career into the his time in the Nationals. And it's interesting, too, because they found old relics. They found old T-shirts he used to make, old props and everything, and he kind of talks about it in a flashback kind of way with his son, which is also a fascinating thing. You kind of see his relationship with his son, and then it also reflects on what his relationship was with his father. And that's, that's really what people me for this movie was I saw the documentary and I was like, oh, I, I really like this guy. I want to find out more about him. And, you know, here he is in a in a movie. And uh, hopefully what also piqued your interest was the uh, clip of the exploding helicopter, which I sent you. Absolutely. Um, it looked like for its time, a very exciting and well done helicopter explosion. Well, we will talk about that in uh, greater detail uh, later. But before we get stuck into Stone Cold, I want to check in with you about what films you've been watching lately. So what have you got for me? Recently, I went to the theaters and I saw Silence, the Martin Scorsese epic starring Andrew Garfield. Um, oh, gosh, what is his name? Liam Neeson. Liam Neeson and Adam Driver. That's who it was. I had heard for a long time now, like Martin Scorsese is making this film. It stars Liam Neeson uh, and it's about like 17th century priests and they're in japan and it just sounded fascinating and i thought okay you know this should be good it'll be different from like the usual gangster epics and stuff like that and it was a really fascinating film in that it it didn't even feel like a scorsese film it really felt like scorsese said you know what i'm gonna pull an akira kurosawa and do a very long, very drawn-out, just epic of a film. And instead of having samurais, I'm just going to have people being tortured <laughs> the whole movie. <laughs> it's it's a real downer at points, because um, these scenes of torture just linger, and you just sit there. It's not as brutal as, like, Passion of the Christ or Saw, which I never thought I'd put those two in a sentence together. Um <laughs> But it's a very long, very draining movie, and it leaves you with a lot of questions. It tests your idea of what is faith, what it means to believe, uh, how strong faith can be. And the way it kind of ducks and weaves through the story, it is interesting, but I wonder if it could have been done differently. I wonder if if maybe you took out a couple sections and made it a little more condensed or if it needed to be longer in a sense. Uh, it just felt like there was a little piece that we were missing. But overall, uh, I enjoyed it, but I still have like those one or two reserves. And I'm still kind of questioning, too, just like I said earlier, the ideas of faith and what it means to believe. And I'm wondering why characters decided to do certain things versus others. And it's hard to have that conversation when not a lot of other people have seen that film. So I'm kind of just stuck pondering those and reading message boards and doing that kind of thing. Well, I'm afraid I'm going to leave you in your solitude, Nick, because I've not seen <laughs> this film either. 
Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely it was I I got lucky. Local theater was showing it, and I figured, you know what, I probably won't get a chance to see it, so you know why not? Why not see a Martin Scorsese picture on the big screen? I'm interested by your sort of comment about feeling actually perhaps needed to be a little bit longer, because one of my sort of continuing bugbears with uh, Scorsese's career is actually how over the years his films have just got longer and longer, and I I just kind of I just like to see him turn in a film that is under two hours, because I think I added this up a little while ago. I think it's nearly 30 years since he last made a film that is under two hours long wow what was that was that mean streets or well i think it might be something like after hours or uh, the color of money something like that okay uh, something that he made in the late 80s i think that was the last sub two hour film that he has made but uh you know how can i not watch a you know martin scorsese direct the passion of the christ meets saw it's yeah there's some moments too where um it's it gets like super gruesome but it's only for like brief flashes but it's still like like i said a very just long drawn out type of torture too like there's moments where you have characters like crucified and they're just pouring boiling hot water on their bodies for like hours at a time and it's just them screaming and those (laughs) scenes last i'm not even making this up those scenes last for like 10 15 minutes and after a point i'm just like we could have snipped this down or cut other things but it's just it's really tough and what's really interesting too is um the original casting list i i I think i'm right when i say this originally it was supposed to star um daniel day lewis and benicio del toro and somebody else. And as I'm watching this, like I kind of thought, like, yeah, I could see these happen. But it also really works with the cast that it has with Adam Driver and Andrew Garfield, these younger, mm. I don't want to say inexperienced guys, but definitely newer uh, film actors to us. And then you have like their, you know, the older experience, Liam Neeson in there, too. So I wouldn't know where, you know, how they would fit in. Well, I will ponder that question when I eventually catch up with the movie. Okay, I think it's time to get stuck into Stone Cold, but first let's listen to Trailer Man's dulcet tones as he gives us a typically pithy description of the film. They warned him when he went undercover that this would be a most unpleasant assignment. I look forward to it. But nobody expects him to be pleasant. Put up the wrong practice, buddy! Brian Bosworth is Stone Cold. And then some. Rated R. So today we're looking at the film Stone Cold. And one of the reasons we're looking at this is because a little while ago I put out on Facebook uh, a call out to our followers for a few suggestions of movies to do. So uh, Barry over at the True Bromance podcast suggested uh, Stone Cold. So that's why we are uh, looking at it today. And this film came out in 1991. As we've already mentioned, it stars Brian Bosworth as a maverick cop who plays by his own rules definitely the best type of cop he's recruited by the fbi to go undercover in a criminal biker gang run by lance henriksen they're involved in everything from drugs racketeering to murdering uh, government officials as bosworth's investigation takes him deeper into the biker gang's illegal world uh, he struggles to keep his identity a secret whilst working to stop their plan to assassinate a top politician 
Co-starring in the film is the great B-movie legend Lance Henriksen. The cast also features William Forsyth as an unhinged piston head. It was directed by Craig R. Baxley, who had a long career as a stunt director, after which he moved behind the camera to work on TV shows like The A-Team and shoot movies such as Action Jackson and the Dolph Lundgren vehicle Dark Angel. Uh, So, Nick, what did you make of Stone Cold? I liked it. Obviously, it's not one of the greatest films I've ever seen, but there was some kind of charm about the film that I just liked. I liked Brian Bosworth. I thought he was consistent throughout the film. It wasn't he kept it. There was a realism and there was a genuineness about him. It wasn't over the top. He wasn't ham fisting. He wasn't showboating for the camera. He was kind of taking it serious and playing this guy as he should be played. Um Lance Hendrick, Lance Henriksen, though, just stole the film for me. Every time he was on screen, I was like, I want more of this guy. Just real Looney Tune of a guy. I even liked Bosworth's uh, partner, who kind of like shows up on and off throughout the film. And I wish they would have done more films with those two together, a la like a Lethal Weapon or something like that, where they're just kind of partnered up to do more. Yeah, he really reminded me of uh, Judge Reinhold in the Beverly Hills Cop movie, because he's this kind of straight-laced, slightly geeky guy who, Mm -hmm. you know, isn't down with the street or down with the kids or anything like that. Absolutely. And and what was nice about his character is they didn't overplay him. Like, he talks about being a bit of a germaphobe um, and a hypochondriac. But it's very subtle. Like when they're meeting in a bathroom, obviously he's grossed out. But there's also little subtle things, too, like when he's at the bar and he orders a glass. And just very nonchalantly, he's like, yeah, can I get another one? This one's kind of dirty. Or like how the bartender calls him Junior. Here's here's your glass, Junior. I like the bit where he turns up at the biker bar, uh, sort of dressed in what he thinks uh, (laughs) kind of like motorcycle (laughs) gear is. And uh, Bosworth has to uh, rip the sleeves off his denim jacket in order to try and help him blend into the uh, into the bar. Yeah, and he's like, let's put some grease in your hair and immediately just kind of coils at that thought like, <laughs> oh, no. But yeah, I'm similar boat to you because as a piece of as a piece of genre entertainment, I think Stone Cold like delivers on what you want from it. So you've got colorful characters, as you say, Lance Henriksen and William Forsyth chew up the scenery in this film. And I think they know exactly what they're doing in those, in those particular roles. I think it's actually good that Brian Bosworth, as you were saying, actually plays it pretty solid because you've got Lance Henriksen and William Forsyth dialing it up to 11. So you don't need somebody else trying to compete those two people. Exactly. And I think that having that dynamic of going back and forth just really helped carry and and keep that you know extra bitter extra charm throughout the film now i have to say i loved the beginning of this film because we start in this supermarket that's being robbed by these three machine gun wielding lowlifes and into the middle of this strolls brian bosworth resplendent in a shoulder padded leather jacket uh, the boss then pre- uh, proceeds to disarm the raiders and stop the robbery. Uh, we then head back to Bosworth's flat, which he shares with his pet Komodo dragon and a very attractive uh, naked woman. I don't know about you, but I thought this was a masterclass of character establishment. I liked it. It was it was different <laughs> because it, he just shows up. And all of a sudden the cop comes rolling in and he's just like, what are you doing? You know, you're suspended. And I was like, oh, this is different. Usually he would do something like this and he gets suspended for this action. 
but he's already suspended, and that makes you wonder, like, what the f*** did he do to get <laughs> suspended in the first place? Like, is it – did he bring his pet Komodo dragon to work? Did he show up to work wearing his girl's underwear? Which I think happened because when his partner shows up to his door, you know, a splendor with uh, muffins and croissants and beignets, he's walking around, and I don't know what – because I don't think a man has ever worn underwear like that before. Well, I watched a Q&A of Brian Bosworth talking about this film, and he says that those pants were his. No. Apparently they were. No, that's that can't be real. <laughs> that, that can't be real. There is film the footage. Were over. <laughs> the 80s were over by then. Uh. You know what I like, too, is uh, – or I, not like, but I found interesting. When the guys are just shooting up the grocery store for no reason, they could have just fired a couple shots in the air. <laughs> but instead, they're just like laying waste to potato chip bags and Ritz boxes. The one character says, hey, go check on so-and-so, and he says, screw that business, man. <laughs> They've already said a whole bunch, and then he goes on to say and and other stuff like why couldn't you just swear <laughs> why? why it felt like someone just like a, threw a quick tv line in there like it's going to be shown on tbs or something he's like screw that business man it's no why is that there i did love how the how that guy empties his entire oozy clip into that display of ritz crackers i mean it was i've never seen ritz crackers a machine gunned with such palace abandon it was an intensity that i've never seen before and and this might be a bold statement. I don't think we've seen it since. <laughs> I don't and think anyone's I, ripped into Ritz like that. Yeah. And uh, going back to uh, what you were saying about uh, this uh, police officer showing up and, well, informing the audience more than anybody else that uh, Bosworth is currently on suspension because uh, I can considered him officer exposition with that particular moment, <laughs> moment of dialogue. <laughs> because it's just like we could have a scene that you know shows he's suspended or we could have a scene that after this he is suspended but you know what we can actually get to that point by having a extra come on deliver one line and then we're done we can move on to him being recruited into or being blackmailed into signing up to this uh, fbi undercover program and i feel like a lot of that happens with the dialogue throughout the film this is skipping ahead a little bit but as the film progresses i feel like a lot of the conversations that we see the characters having i feel like we're a couple sentences in like when they start there's already been two pages of dialogue and we're getting to that third page where they're just here's the meat and potatoes of the conversation instead of you know the introduction mm. and you know that colorful yeah. character development in that opening sequence there was a, a little twist on a familiar 80s action trope there so i'm sure you spotted there's a, a very sort of memorable moment where uh, bosworth sort of it looks like he's going to basically make some kind of a milkshake for himself mm -hmm. so he's putting all this stuff into a blender he's putting orange juice snickers bars crisps bananas and eggs and uh these kind of characters making some sort of grotesque breakfast shake for themselves was a kind of feature of 80s cop movies or 80s action movies. But here it's given a little twist because it tries to make you think that, yeah, Bosworth is going to be drinking this at any moment. But then he feeds it to his uh, pet Komodo dragon. Which he ends up treating just like a dog, picking him up and hugging him and kissing him. And I don't have a lot of experiences with Komodo dragons, but I feel like if I picked one up and started doing that, it would immediately bite at my face or claw me or something like that was I. Well, apparently I guess they're quite just, nasty creatures, so I think that's entirely possible. 
Yes, but I think that also adds to you know how much of a renegade or a maverick cop this guy really is. Like he's got a pet Komodo dragon, so you better look out. I was kind of a bit disappointed that the Komodo dragon didn't sort of feature again in the movie. Like I don't know, like the villains take the Komodo dragon hostage or something, or or I don't know, it intervenes at a critical moment to get Bosworth out of a situation that he's got himself into. Had they gone through with my idea of making more films with uh, uh, <laughs> Joe's character and his partner, at some point that would have happened where the Komodo dragon gets kidnapped and he just loses his <laughs> a la John Wick and just starts <laughs> mowing people down. That's the movie I want to see. So after this part of the film, we're then introduced to the biker gang and they're headed up by Chains, who's played by Lance Henriksen. And they seem to sort of hang out on the beach, having these huge rallies where they engage in drag races, no hold bards, wrestling contests and attempt to shoot beer cans off each other's heads. Uh, You're an American male, Nick. Is this just a normal weekend for you? Uh, Just about. Uh... (laughs) But rather than on the beach, sometimes it's in the woods. Uh, yeah. Sometimes it's in a field. Uh, I all thought as much. On, yeah, it all <laughs> depends on how you can get there. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I, I, I've i seen people try to do the whole beer can shooting a thing again. I, never in a million <laughs> years would I even attempt to do something like that. But they up the ante by at the end of it, there's a guy who just pulls out an Uzi and just starts firing away. And then they all giggle and laugh about it. Like, it's just kicks, it, it man. my mind. Just for kicks. Yeah. <laughs> Just for shits and giggles, man. Don't be so... <laughs> Just stay loose, bro. I thought that was... I mean, that plays into the kind of... There's a certain cartoon quality to this film, and I think that sets up that particular sort of aspect of this. And I think it kind of very rapidly shows you, look, this is going to be a film full of exaggeration, full of over-the-topness. And, you know, hey, I like seeing big, slightly overweight... Guys with loads of facial hair in leathers and, you know, ripped up denims. I like seeing men who look like that wrestling with each other, Nick. I don't know about you, but I like seeing men do that. Do, <laughs> do you, though? Because that sounds like something Rob Halford would say. I, Just big I, leather daddies <laughs> running around in the sand, kicking at each other. Oh, stop it, you big brute. Oh, <laughs> oh don't hit me. Oh, gee whiz. I think I like seeing it. I think I like seeing it in films when there's a safe remove between myself and those men. Is there a bit of a not? I don't want to say fantasy because that might have some kind of implication. But do you wish that you were that kind of person, just like this big burly dude in leather jackets running around, just taking what he wants? I don't know. There is a part of me that wants to be drunk and wildly shooting beer cans off other people's heads. I think. I think there's a little bit of that in everybody. Now, legend has it, when uh, the director, Craig R. Baxley, came onto the set, he informed the crew that he'd been hired to blow stuff up and kill people until all the money runs out. Now, Nick, do you think the producers got their money's worth out of Mr. Baxley? Absolutely. It's funny that you mentioned the kind of cartoonish action in the beginning. It feels like the first director took over or had that. And then after those scenes were shot, this new guy stepped in because it just amps up from there. We start seeing more, you know, violence with like blood splurt, uh, blood squirts. Uh, we start seeing violence on much larger levels. We start seeing car chase or tr- motorcycle chases, actually. It really, the ante just gets up from there. So absolutely, they got their money's worth. 
And I don't know what you thought. I think this is one of the most explosive films I've ever seen because two cars can't have so much as a fender bender without one of them like detonating in a huge fireball. Absolutely. Uh, there was there's some things that made me question, like, is that the point of impact must have been so perfect for these two cars to just immediately explode. <laughs> they must have been doused with gasoline. One's got flint. The other one's got steel. And as soon as they hit flint and steel, woof, just fireball. Now, I have to say, I was a little mystified by Lance Henriksen's big plan in this film, because in this film, he is upset that one of his gang members um, who has cold-bloodedly killed uh, a priest inside a church with a shotgun. He's really upset that this guy has been uh, prosecuted for murder. I, I mean, seems a little odd to kind of uh, get so upset about such a uh, sort of obviously heinous act. Uh, so that's he's upset by the, the kind of sentence for this. And that is the trigger, really, for sort of Lance Henriksen going on this sort of campaign against this crusading district attorney. And this uh, sort of ends up at the end of this film with Henriksen taking over this entire courtroom building, slaughtering at least 40 or 50 people, possibly 100 people. I kind of thought, what's the end game here? Because you do this the entire United States law enforcement are just going to come down like a ton of bricks on you and your biker gang. Absolutely. And and they say they called in the National Guard, but I feel like their presence wasn't as strong as it would be or should be for an instance like that. And I think what we're missing is we're missing the reason why he's going after these guys. We never get an explanation of what D-Day is. We have to kind of piece together why he keeps calling the guy the whip, like we're going to crack the whip. We're going we're gonna to crack it. Guys are getting ready to crack the whip. It, it took a little bit for like it to register with me, but what we're missing is just the motive. Like, did did this priest do something and he sent his friend to do something to the priest? And like everybody kind of knows, oh, this priest was doing this and that and he got, you know, uh, you know, street justice or whatever kind of justice you want to call it. And what's his relationship with the guy that ends up going to prison? There's just a lot of unanswered questions. And I wonder if we get those like kind of tied in with uh, Joe's backstory or if it's just another story altogether that just wasn't really told properly. Yeah, because there was some problems with the making of this film. So uh, I think originally this film was directed by a guy called uh, Bruce Helmuth or Bruce Melmoth, who uh, I think he uh, directed an early uh, Steven Seagal film and he got booted off the picture it's not exactly clear but uh, I think it's probably uh, drugs or alcohol related reading between the lines of what's been said about his uh, absence from the picture and they were, I don't know they were like a couple of months into shooting and Craig R. Baxley came on board to the film and as you were saying Nick they did sort of junk the original beginning of this movie and then picked up filming from there so yeah maybe there may be some of the explanation for quite what is going on with uh, Lance Henriksen's kind of gang has got lost in uh, that editing and also the guy's just plain mental um <laughs> he he looks he I when, when I'm watching him like in my head I'm just he feels like he's a continuation of Dennis Hopper's character in Blue Velvet like if he just grew his hair long and went south and started a biker gang, like that's who that guy is. And he, I even saw like little glimpses of, uh, gosh, Gary Oldman, his character in, God, I can't even think of the character's name that he plays. This is going to sound film? really good on the podcast. Oh, it's the one with Christian Slater and uh, Arquette. Um, True Romance? 
Yes. Uh, the character that he plays in the beginning with like the dreads and everything for like yeah. 10 minutes or so. I was getting like hints of that character as well. So he just seemed like an all around just unwound guy. And as it went along, obviously all the drugs and the money and the power, like he just be- kept becoming more and more unhinged. And I think because we don't see him established, he just kind of shows up and he's offering his woman to Joe. It's just a very I guess we're just supposed to take it for their word. Like, no, he's a bad guy. Don't you know, just don't worry about it. But we never really see why he's a bad guy or get why he's a bad guy until obviously he's just murdering everyone in a city hall building and just creating a total bloodbath. Because it seemed to me if you wanted to shut down Lance Henriksen's biker gang, it wouldn't be too hard. I don't know why they had to kind of bother with the whole undercover bit because, you know, they've got drugs everywhere. They've got guns everywhere. I mean, you could probably get them on like misdemeanors about, I don't know, the exhausts on their, on their like drop down Harleys or whatever the bikes they are that they've got. I mean, this, this is, this would be a group who would be quite easy to shut down, you know, irritate, just kind of cramp their style. I don't really know why they had to kind of go for the whole undercover bit. Absolutely. I mean, they could get them on permitting alone. If you look at the <laughs> fortress they built, look at that fencing, that wiring. I guarantee you they didn't pay for the permits for that. That is, that is the that's the movie I want to see. That's Stone Cold 2 where, like, you know, <laughs> permitting crackdown. <laughs> There's just a guy in the office. Hey, tip wait a board. second. Have you guys heard about this? <laughs> <laughs> I got an anonymous tip on a fortress of biker gangs. This wiring is not regulation standard. <laughs> You're not even using the right caliber cable. It's a 12. <laughs> it should be a 16. Exactly. I, I don't know why they didn't go in that direction. But uh, we've already talked about some of the actors who are in this film. We've already talked a bit about Brian Bosworth and uh, Lance Henriksen. Uh, but we've also got uh, one of the great kind of unhinged, over-the-top kind of character actors of the uh, 80s and 90s. And uh, it seemed to me that when you wanted somebody who could be an unhinged maniac, you made one of two phone calls. You either called Gary Busey or you called <laughs> William Forsyth. What did you uh, make of his role here? I felt like he, they just said, hey, have you ever watched the Looney Tunes and you've seen the Tasmanian Devil? That's who you are. <laughs> just make noise, scream, and just run around and be violent. That's all he was. There was no rhyme or reason. He was just the the personification of violence and rage, and I loved it. And uh, apparently, uh, again, this uh, rich source of information that was the uh, Brian Bosworth uh, Q&A, apparently William Forsyth's uh, dedication to uh, being this gnarled, grisly uh, biker dude was such that he didn't change his clothes for the entirety of the four-month shoot. <laughs> so apparently he absolutely stank quite quickly into filming. Oh, jeez. And he's just surrounded by all those girls all the time. Oh, <laughs> oh. Talking of uh, girls in this film, I was actually quite uh, taken by, I can't remember her character name, but Chains' girlfriend. She's played by Arabella Holtzbog. What a mouthful that is. You made that up. You (laughs) made that up. I'm not even looking at the IMDb and I know you made that up. Oh, well, unless somebody's hacked, unless, uh, you know, these Russian hackers have hacked IMDb and they're having a joke with me. Her <laughs> name, her name is Arabella Holtzbog. And uh, I was quite taken with her. She had kind of, uh, she had a kind of uh, like a Neve Campbell type look. And I kind of thought, you know, she probably could have had a bit of a career, but uh, she didn't really. She kind of was in a few second tier sort of genre films and then sort of fizzled away. But I thought she could have, you know, she was somebody who sort of, she stood out for me in this picture in a pretty nothing role. And I thought, 
yeah, she's somebody who could have uh, done a bit more. It's a bit sad that she never really got the chance, it seems. I agree. Her character always seemed like she was much smarter than what she was doing or why she was doing it. Her character is also one that I really wanted to see a backstory on. How did she end up where she ended up? Did somebody, you know, somebody, her husband somehow died and they got some kind of justice and she felt, you know, betrothed, not betrothed, but like beholden to them, like I owe you guys or something. Like, I just, I want to know how she ended up there because she's definitely much smarter than what her character was like seeming to be. Okay. I think we're going to take a short break where you can hear about a show that's much more professional than ours. But when we come back, we're going to be looking at the exploding helicopter action. And I really can't wait because it's a classic. Hey, guys, this is JD from the In Session Film Podcast. Every week on our show, you can join my co-host Brendan and I as we review the latest films that's out in theaters. It also inspires us to discuss a top three list of some sort. And we have a lot of other fun movie discussions as well. It's always a blast. And we also have a show on Fridays called our Extra Film Podcast. This is a show that gives us the space to talk about the latest indies and art films and other classics that we normally just don't get to talk about on our main show. You can find our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, SoundCloud, TuneIn Radio, Player FM, and more. In fact, you can just see everything about us, including our social medias at InCessionFilm.com. So join us every week. We'd absolutely love to have you. We're back, and this is the most exciting part of the show, as this is where we look at the exploding helicopter action. Our favourite fiery delight happens towards the end of the film. The Brotherhood biker gang, their efforts to kill the district attorney have gone awry. Inside a courthouse building, one of Henriksen's goons, who is on a motorcycle, yes, indoors, faces down Bosworth in one of the corridors. Uh, the greasehead guns his engine and drives straight at the Bos. Our mulleted hero shoots the biker, who falls from his machine, but his iron horse continues to roar down the corridor, crashing straight out a window and straight into a helicopter that is conveniently hovering just outside. The pilot has just enough time to yell a despairing, No! Before the pimped-up Harley crashes into the whirly bird, causing the machine to explode. Nick, what did you make of the exploding helicopter action? I felt it was a perfect helicopter explosion. If I was a judge, it would it be so close to a 10. It would easily be a 9-4, 9-5. It's just – it's so simple but so perfectly executed. Literally, a motorcycle just hits it. It explodes. It's the right amount of explosion. It's not over the top. You'd think it'd be over the top and just super excessive given the rest of the film, but it just explodes, drops to the ground, causes a couple extra uh, explosions as well. I just – I really dug it. It's a shame that there weren't more – explosions throughout the film and that we had to wait nearly they barely under the wire they got this explosion and i was getting concerned because i'm looking at the time (laughs) and i'm like man we only have 10 minutes left i hope i hope it happens soon but we got there and uh i was happy we did yeah it is a very special exploding helicopter because you kind of think they're not going to do this they're not going to do this and oh yeah boy are they going to do this they are going to shoot down a helicopter with a motorcycle using it as some kind of improvised vehicular cannonball it just rockets out of this window straight into the helicopter i love the no i think uh the kind of camera goes a little bit slow motion there so you get to kind of see that moment draws out the anticipation of it and then obviously straight into the helicopter really big juicy fireball see the wreckage crash to the ground see a a kind of like a bit more of a fireball as it's on the ground 
just really exciting, really over the top. I think it's exactly what you want uh, in this type of movie. You want to see stuff that you haven't seen before. And a uh, helicopter shot down with a motorcycle. When this film came out, no one had ever done that before. Really? No one had ever done it before. The only other example of uh, someone shooting down a helicopter with a motorcycle is in The Expendables 2. Sylvester Stallone uh, shoots a uh, motocross scrambler type bike into a helicopter at the beginning of that movie. That's the only other uh, example. Mm, it's, it's almost like a historic moment here for helicopter explosions. Well, I think it's uh, time to wrap this show up. Nick, thanks for coming on the show. Do you want to take a moment to tell people where they can find you on the internet? Absolutely. You can find us FrenchToastSunday.com, where we do the podcast. We have all kinds of postings. I feel like I say this every time I'm on any podcast, really, but we are still around. We, we are still putting out <laughs> posts and episodes. Things have just gotten hectic lately. People are traveling. People are getting surgery. People are buying houses. Just everybody, just like a lot of life is happening right now. But we're in a lot of emails and contact and brainstorming, and it's going to be a really fun and exciting year for French Toast Sunday. So FrenchToastSunday.com. You can also talk to us twitter at fts tweets we're always looking for a nice chat about films and as always don't forget to check out the exploding helicopter website where you can find a whole bunch of vaguely amusing reviews of other films we'll be back soon but until then keep watching the skies for those exploding helicopters podcast is a proud member of the Lamb Podcasting Network. Find the network at largeassmovieblogs.com. Joe, what the hell's going on? You're still on suspension. Let me see you sweet talk your way out of this one. Huh? You gotta say for yourself this time. You gotta clean up on aisle four.